Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Skip Button, a podcast all about the music you love to hate. I'm your host, Ben Barzilai. Let us forget our conflicts and put our differences aside, for there is a new evil at hand that threatens the very fiber of our being. Humanity must now unite in our hatred for the treacherous banjo bastards Mumford and Sons and join together as one force to ensure that our future is kept safe from the destruction of euphoric banjo anthems sung by annoying, upper-class, waistcoat-sporting husky little fucks. So what I just read is the mission statement for a now-defunct Facebook group called I Hate Mumford & Sons. For those of you who don't know, Mumford & Sons is a British folk pop band who, from 2009 to 2013, had a distinct old-time-inspired sound that pervaded the world of pop music. Their second and third albums, Babel and Wildermind, both debuted at number one in the UK and US, with Babel becoming the fastest-selling rock album of the decade. The band has received eight total Grammy nominations for Babel, which took home the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. And yet, most people I know can't stand them. As Lucy Jones, a critic for NME, puts it, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's willing to own up to being a fan. Someone told me he'd rather defend Hiroshima. Why? Why do so many people have this much venom for such a successful band? I'm coming by this question honestly because when I was in ninth grade, Mumford & Sons broke into the mainstream with The Cave and Little Lion Man, two singles from their debut album, Sigh No More. And being totally honest, I remember having a really good first impression of their music, but I became really quickly aware that the people in my circle were making fun of them. So being an impressionable teenager, I convinced myself that I hated them too. Now, over 10 years later, I want to look back at their early music and find out what made people like my high school friends turn so quickly on them. So, to answer this question, I started first with my high school friends. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. So first I called my friend Jake Vitale, who I spoke with a couple months ago about Nickelback. I asked him what he remembers thinking about Mumford & Sons when they first came out. Yeah, so I first heard like Little Lion Man and The Cave in 2011, maybe late 2010. Um, I just remember it like winter of 11th grade is how I remember it. Um, I I liked it, but there was definitely like from the beginning, there was always an element of like it being a guilty pleasure where it was just like, this is like, this is like trying too hard to hit my like pleasure centers of my brain. When Jake says that this is trying too hard to hit the pleasure centers of my brain, I think he's hitting on something that a lot of people feel about their music, which is that it uses artificial and cheap shortcuts to create something that passes as emotionally resonant. There's also just like the climax, as you can see, coming from a mile away, like, oh, okay, like there's going to be like a soft bass drum four on the floor, keeping time, and the banjo's gonna go fucking crazy. In a way, it's like someone's just, like, injecting you with, like, like, McDonald's french fries, just, like, shoving them down your throat. Like, like... (laughs) Um, The problem with making an album that tries to take the fast route to our pleasure centers is that it very quickly becomes transparent and predictable. And this is another idea that I kept coming across, that every single song of theirs sounds exactly the same. In fact, there's a YouTube video by a guy named Dion Beery, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, with over 3.8 million views called Every Mumford & Sons Song, Basically. Hi, I love a girl. She left me sad and blue and two and you and shoe and boob. 
It's a funny video and maybe it's confirmation bias, but when I go back to their songs, even the deep cuts, they do all kind of follow the blueprint that Dion lays out. And once you notice it, it's kind of hard to unnotice it and it makes their music seem really tired. So here's my problem with this argument. You can make it about so many bands. Not only that, but you can actually find a bunch of videos like this one that lampoon other artists, ranging from Bon Iver to Alt-J to Frank Ocean. Every artist has a sound. The thing that Dion is making fun of them for is the same thing that gives any artist their identity. Don't get me wrong, Mumford & Sons definitely have a predictability issue. It's just not enough to convince me that they're worth hating on this much. So I talked to my friend AJ, who I've spoken with about Nickelback and Black Eyed Peas, and I asked him to talk about the band's predictability. They're one of those bands that's like inescapable. Uh, you know their music, but you don't actually know which songs of theirs you know. But because they make the, song, the same song every time, you really know all of their music without really having to actually dive into the albums. Do you, do you think that's part of why they're so successful is because like everybody, it's like all reliable, like you know exactly what you're getting when you put them on? I think it's the consistency. I think it's also that their songs are like on-demand emotion for people who don't like art. <laughs> and that brings us back to Jake's point about music that goes, quote, straight to the pleasure centers, because I kind of get what he means. Their music, with its barrage of crescendos and warbling harmonies and four-to-the-floor beats, create an impression of high-stakes emotionality, but when you listen to the writing, there isn't that much emotionality going on. Pitchfork's Stephen M. Dusner said something kind of similar when he reviewed Sign No More, which he rated a 2.1 out of 10. Dusner wrote, For music that ostensibly prizes the appearance of honesty and confession, Sinomore sounds surprisingly anonymous, giving us a sense of the band as engaged music listeners, but not as real people. What I find very strange about Mumford & Sons is despite making incredibly sentimental music, it feels extremely cold. Um, none of the members of Mumford & Sons strike me as sentimentalists as like personality types. And so it's very strange to me that they have such a propensity to make very dramatic music that seems to want to be very evocative. When I asked my friends to talk about why their music feels so hollow, they pointed to the same song. The, the one that's like, uh, I really fucked it up this time, didn't... Oh yeah, so oh, Little, no, Lion Little Lion Man. Um, Literally, I listened to uh, Little Lion Man for the first time, which... I'm going to digress right now and talk about that song because holy fucking shit. Again, my first impression of the song was actually really positive. And even listening to it now, I still find it really catchy and evocative. But over 10 years after the song came out, Jake and AJ felt no need to hold back when they told me everything that's wrong with this song. When he says, I really fucked it up this time, didn't I, my dear? It's a perfect example of kind of what I'm talking about. Like... It is not some, like, that song rests on, like, admitting that you're, that you did wrong is some, like, noble thing, and, like, like, no, fuck you, dude, like, it's, like, like, this this isn't an engaging song at all, like, oh my, it's so annoying to be like, I fucked it up this time, 
It's like, okay, like, cool, why do I give a shit? It seems like it's a line about regret and about a crisis and about the dissolution of something um, and about guilt and accountability and all of these things. But the actual like grammatical formation of the line, I really fucked it up this time, didn't I, my dear, is not an actual confession of any kind of wrongdoing and isn't actually even like a sort of excerpt from a scene of any actual kind of crisis. I think what AJ and Jake are getting at is that the problem with this song is that it's an apology song that doesn't actually make any apologies. By the end, you feel like they laid their souls bare and put it all on the line, but if you listen to what they're saying, they didn't. And according to a lot of critics, this kind of summarizes everything that's wrong with the band. They give off the impression of having expressed themselves without actually having to do it. I had two gut reactions to what AJ and Jake had to say. One is that they are 100% correct. The other was, I'm not really all that bothered by it. I'm not saying that I don't care whether a band has emotionally engaging lyrics. Obviously, that's super important, but what I and I think a lot of people appreciate about Mumford & Sons isn't their songwriting necessarily, but the way they perform the songs. They express catharsis in a really engaging way and are really good at inviting us to join in in that catharsis. Marcus Mumford, the lead singer of the band, has a voice that is so big and filled with grit that even when he's speaking nonsense, there's a part of your brain that instinctively connects with it. So my question is, if a band can make something click in the pleasure centers of your brain just using their instruments and some vapid lyrics, is that really all that bad? In fact, isn't that more than you can say about a lot of bands? So a couple weeks ago, I announced on my Instagram story that I was covering Mumford & Sons for this episode, and my friend Stephanie reached out. She is an amazing musician who went to Hamilton College with me, and she wanted to offer her perspective as someone who actually really likes their music. Do you, like, do you get a lot of flack for being a Mumford & Sons fan? You know, I'm not, like, so vocal about it, and I think a lot of the people that I... (laughs) No, and I'm I'm not so vocal about it because I'm ashamed. I think it's more like I was more of a fan of them in their earlier years and now. Like, I loved their earlier... Like, I could probably sing all of Sino more. And, like, I remember... Like, you know when you have memories associated with certain songs? Like, I listen to some of these songs so much that I have memories associated with them. I brought up what Jake said about feeling like they're taking the easiest route to your pleasure centers. Oh, that is really a keen observation because some of those chord changes feel I mean there there there's a, like again there's a reason why pop uses so many of the same like chord progressions because there are certain things that resonate more with humans and they're formulaic and they feel good but I would like challenge that and be like is there anything wrong with being formulaic if the formula works? Like, I agree that play, it's interesting. I'd, I'd never thought I would find myself arguing. I think I might be playing devil's advocate a little bit because, um, no, yeah, hacking their way into my pleasure centers for sure. And I guess I'm okay with it as long as, maybe the way I'm okay with it is because it's not my only type of music that I listen to. Like, I have a pretty eclectic like this is something i would put on when i want a certain feeling and if i get that feeling from this then that's good so then we got to talking a little bit more about the band's sound and steph brought up a band that gets compared to mumford and sons a lot and enjoys a lot of the same animosity you know i was gonna draw this comparison it's like the lumineers and who i love they had ho hey which was like so big and everyone loved it and i think if you had said you didn't like it you were 
a goddamn dirty liar. Most people I know can't fucking stand Ho-Hey. Well, that song is like an absolute so, fucking bop. Like, that song is so good. I mean, I concede, like, I just, I, I just think it's one of those pop songs. Like, I feel like if it came on, you were like, Ho! <laughs> hey! <laughs> right. It's like one of those songs where you're like, singing along at the top of your lungs. Listening to her talk about the song, it got me thinking about the difference between how people like Jake and AJ perceive Mumford and Sons versus how someone like Stephanie might perceive Mumford and Sons. Well, here's what I've been picking up from other people when I talk to them mm-hmm. is that like, mm-hmm. if you are somebody who, when they listen to music, actively like really like listen to it and like are like thinking intensely about the thing you're consuming. Most of those people don't like Mumford and Sons because <laughs> they like, the lyrics are kind of, you know, whatever. Yeah, they're washy. And, but if you're somebody who like, when they listen to music, just like experience it, like don't analyze it and just like feel whatever they're feeling in the moment, those kinds of people love Mumford and Sons for the same reason that certain people love ho hey more than other people. It's because, like, it's just, like, in the oh, moment, it, like, sure. is cathartic. It's all about just, like, screaming and, like, jumping and shouting. <laughs> and if that's enough for you, yeah, then you like Mumford and Sons. For sure. That really, really resonates. I was going to mention there's this part of this one song from Sino Moore where, you know, they do that thing where they're like, Rah! like, okay, I can't replicate it, but they, like, they're like, a white blank page and a swelling gray and like the harmony rises. And like, I have this visceral response where like my hair rises on my arms. And it's like, I have that when I listen to Mumford and Sons and I have that when I listen to like, I mean, I'm not just going to throw Tchaikovsky out there, but like I, I get this, I think that's a really nice way to talk about it. Cause I do get a visceral response from many different kinds of music and like, for some reason this like early Mumford and Sons does it for me. I think it's like the harmony, it's the, you know, relatively simple orchestration, but it, it's cohesive. And I think it is, yeah, it does something for me. Like I think paying extra attention to lyrics is important, but I've never been a person that's overly concerned with lyrics, which probably sort of meshes with that like duality, like people who are um, really paying attention to what they're listening to, whereas people are sort of viscerally experiencing it. Um, I think I fall into the latter category for sure. Just to be clear, when I compare people who process music analytically versus viscerally, I am not making a distinction between intellectuals and non-intellectuals. I can say pretty confidently that Steph is an intellectual, but I think there's something to be said about the ability to experience music, not as a composite of lyrics and rhythms and motifs, but to just listen and lean into what the music is instantaneously making you feel and ignore everything else. It's an ability I wish I had, because if I did, I might not have been so quick to cast Mumford & Sons aside. Of course, one of the things Mumford & Sons is designed to make you feel is nostalgic. Their old-timey clothing and instruments and their pastoral lyrics are, to put it cynically, meticulously designed to evoke a sense of longing. What are they trying to make us long for? Well, that's kind of the issue. Well, it's something that I find very sort of like dark about their specific brand of like sentimentality is that it is 
um, a brand and a sound and uh, a set of visuals dripping with nostalgia, but you can't identify what any of it is actually nostalgic for. AJ's getting at another point that I kept coming across. As a folk group, the band's aesthetic doesn't seem rooted in anything actual, but is just based on vague approximations of what a folk band is supposed to be like. Ezra Marcus wrote something for Vulture that I think expands on this really nicely. Quote, Mumford & Sons aren't reclaiming specific moments from a particular old time. They're just old-timey, invoking the past itself as an identity through sepia tones and Edison bulbs. And then AJ pointed something out that proved that these sort of nostalgic tendencies were clear right from the start. Something I found really funny is when I was starting my deep dive on them, and I was like, uh, you know, I like went on Wikipedia and I looked them up and it's like, it says Mumford & Sons. Um, it's a strange name. I sort of assumed it was meant to evoke some kind of like a bespoke tailoring company or like some kind of era in which all companies, no matter what they like did or made, were called firms and men had to establish themselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as I was scrolling through Wikipedia, literally three paragraphs down, it said explicitly, yeah, we were hoping to evoke an old timey father son business. Which is hilarious, which is so funny in itself. But what I find so strange about that is like, why? And to be honest, this is something that I actually find genuinely problematic about the band. Granted, I might be biased because as a rule, I'm always a little skeptical of music whose main quality is nostalgia. But the culture that Mumford & Sons is nostalgic for, whether you want to call it folk or Americana or old-time music, it's not some vague, unspecified relic of Western culture, but rather a still-active facet of American society, one that the band continuously profits off of. And as I was wrestling with this, a phrase kept coming back to me, a phrase from the mission statement that I read at the top of the episode, treacherous banjo bastards. There are people out there who genuinely hate Mumford & Sons simply because they play the banjo. People who, during my conversations with AJ, Jake, and Steph, I refer to as, quote, banjo-phobic. And this bums me out for a couple of reasons. First of all, the banjo is an awesome instrument, and if you haven't seen a great banjo player perform live, you're really missing out. Second of all, writing off a band just for playing the banjo is at best close-minded and at worst actively elitist. But... Lastly, Mumford & Sons are not the standard bearers for what it means to be a banjo player. What if people are accidentally confusing their distaste for the band's hollow lyrics and cliched aesthetic for a distaste in the actual culture that the band is trying to emulate? Basically what I'm asking is, by making a profit off of peddling nostalgia, are Mumford & Sons actively taking something away from the tradition they're so inspired by? So those are a lot of big questions and I couldn't answer them myself, so I decided to call a couple of people with some more experience in the folk genre than I have. My name is Max Shacken. I'm a musician that uh, is in a band called Parsons Field. Parsons Field is a band who, like Mumford & Sons, make music that fuse genres ranging from folk to rock to pop. Uh, they recently released an amazing album called Happy Hour on the Floor, which I highly recommend everyone check out. My name is Jake Blunt, and I am a banjo and fiddle player. I play traditional banjo and fiddle music, predominantly from African-American and indigenous communities in the southeastern United States, but also just from the Appalachian region in general. So like me, Jake studied music at Hamilton College. Uh, because I already talked to a friend named Jake for this episode, I'm just going to refer to him as Blunt. Max and Blunt represent very different facets of folk music today. 
Max represents the contemporary culture of folk fused with pop and rock songwriting, and Blunt is firmly planted in the traditional old-time style of the Appalachians. I was pretty excited to see what their takes on the band were and how they differed from each other. I started by asking Max whether or not he feels the band succeeds as a folk group. Um, in terms of, like, Mumford and Sons' actual music, their first album that, like, made them super famous is, like, it's a really good album. I mean, like, like there are some, like, incredible songs, like, incredible lyrics. Um, like, it's really, really well done. I told him that I was concerned that Mumford and Sons helped stoke a kind of banjophobia. Which is kind of ridiculous when you think about that, like, you know, there are, like, they're even playing banjo the right way. Like, mm. there are so many folk bands that, like, play banjo and, like, purposely do it in, like, a different style. Because they're just, like, you know, they want to, like, have their own spin on, like, this American tradition. But, like, um, and, like, for some reason, like, that's okay. But Mumford and Sons, who, like, play banjo in, like, the traditional bluegrass way that if, like, they, like, showed up to, like, a bluegrass hang, they could actually hang. For some reason, because it's really poppy, they get shat on for it. Right. As someone who's a lot more traditional than Max... Blunt's feelings towards the band's contributions to folk music are a bit more complicated. And obviously I'm not a close Mumford and Sons fan by any stretch of the imagination, but I am someone who's, you know, pretty deep in a very closely associated genre um, where we get asked to play their songs all the time. So is that true? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I would you feel like we'll probably get to it later. But one of the things that I feel like gets Mumford and Sons hated on by people who are like, insiders in that genre in that community is not actually anything that Mumford and Sons does. It's how other people kind of elevate them to be like the gods of the genre, that that is like the standard for banjo music now, even though better banjo music has been being made for so long. Since Max and Blunt have both been playing folk music for years, it seemed like a really good time to validate or put to bed the idea that Mumford and Sons should be villainized for making inauthentic folk music. I mean, like, it, it really just, but does it matter that it's fake? That's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't think like, um, and like, again, like, I don't know, like their lyrics well at all or anything, but like, are like Mumford and Sons trying to like have these like really emotional songs where they're like speaking about their lives? Because to my knowledge, they're not. Like, it's not like they're like the Avid brothers who are like, you know, like purposely writing like as emotional songs as possible. And, like, you know, just, like, putting themselves on a silver plate, so to speak, for, like, the world and just, like, see who they are. Like, you know, I don't think Mumford and Sons is trying to do that, and I think that's okay. I was really surprised that Blunt more or less agreed. Whenever questions like that come up, I become conflicted over how much the band has control of that. And if Mumford and Sons is out there being, like, you know, if they were portraying themselves as authentic folk music and loyal to the source and playing traditional American folk stuff, I would absolutely be pissed off by that and find it really annoying. But what I see as the larger issue is that Mumford and Sons is like out there making their music. As far as I know, Mumford and Sons don't sell themselves as purveyors of, you know, folk traditions from the uh, Americas, they're just like picking up our instruments and doing their thing with them, which like has its own problems that we can get to. 
But at the end of the day, I'm not convinced they are trying to sell themselves as folk music. I think the problem is that most Americans don't know the difference. Both Max and Blunt feel like Mumford & Sons aren't making music that's intended to be considered canonical folk music. So since their music matches the intention, they don't really find them all that offensive. And if these folk musicians don't hold Mumford & Sons' inauthenticity against them, should anyone else? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but my problem with the band isn't so much that they're making a performance out of folk music, it's that the folk music they're performing isn't rooted in a specific tradition. The sounds that they're mimicking have sources that range from Ireland all the way to the Appalachians. Isn't the whole point of folk music that it's supposed to represent a specific folk people? I mean, bluegrass, I mean, you know, came from traditional Celtic music when, like, Irish people uh, immigrated to the United States. And then, like, you know, I mean, like, it's, it's it's very much the same world in terms of, like, you know, melodies and, like, uh, songs that are based around storytelling. So if bluegrass and Celtic music come from similar heritages, is it really that much of a problem that Mumford & Sons find inspiration from multiple traditions? I have seen a lot of really compelling what I would call maybe fusion music made between people of different traditional musical forms, uh, particularly Celtic and American stuff, because there is a common heritage there. Um, but at the same time, the question for me is once the music becomes so uprooted from its geographical and cultural origins, what is folk music about it anymore? You've taken the folk out. I think ultimately the lack of folk in the band's folk music is what some people are actually picking up on when they call the band inauthentic. And I think a big reason that people have such a problem with vague appropriations is that it diverts attention and resources from the people who are making the actual thing that's being appropriated. For me, um, it, this extends beyond Mumford & Sons to be kind of a general folk pop Americana problem that exists with a lot of Nashville bands. American bands do this all the time, where people will adopt these kind of working class aesthetics and art forms and use these things that people, you know, made through backbreaking labor uh, to advance themselves and to advance an image. And I know there are a lot of people, myself included, who find themselves, you know, walking around downtown Nashville and going, who are all of these people with cowboy boots on who've never seen a horse before? And <laughs> I think Mumford and Sons, for me, I don't know their personal lives, but because they're not from this country, because they don't seem to have any direct personal connection to the instruments or the style that they're drawing from, my immediate question, you know, as a person of color in this country, especially and seeing what's happened with our music when it's been taken abroad and made into these uh, capitalistic mass media hits is where do the resources go after that to have so much of the work that is being done in our scene and by people who we really respect kind of go unignored or uh, go ignored or unacknowledged in the mainstream because people think Mumford and Sons is what folk music is. I think it just builds up resentment over that. I don't think it's so much because what the band is doing is inherently bothersome. Um, but the fact that, it feels like the band hasn't paid their dues to be the pinnacle of folk music right now, and people still try to sell them as that. 
Max seemed to agree that the band didn't really pay the dues that artists of their genre are usually expected to pay. But like, it just feels like they're like a very corporate band that was like kind of like put together by a record label, and like they didn't like grow up like they didn't like you know they're, they're, they they were never like a local band that like people were like rooting for to be really successful. Like if you look on YouTube, like you can't find like any like old videos of Mumford and Sons like before they were like, playing arenas. Mm. It's just like a little suspicious. But despite the fact that the band seems to have entered the mainstream in a suspicious way and have maybe taken shine that would have been better allocated towards the people actually behind Appalachian music, the optimist in me really wants to think that having a folk band achieve such high success did some good for the genre, which led me to my final question. It was a question kind of like the one that I asked AJ and Jake about Nickelback. Here's my question. Is there an argument that Nickelback and bands like Nickelback helped introduce a generation to bands like Nirvana or like the... like Hell the no. No? <laughs> There's just not know. an argument for that. I, 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 I thought you were going to ask, is there an argument to be made that like the corporate scene of music like Nickelback helped create a cultural moment in which the Iraq War was acceptable? <laughs> and when I asked AJ the same question about Mumford & Sons, he wasn't any more open to the concept. To, at least to their credit, do you think that... Um, maybe Mumford & Sons introduced people to a sort of sound that they weren't familiar with beforehand, and those people were then able to find maybe better examples of that sound? No. <laughs> but when I asked Max and Blunt if they thought that Mumford & Sons did the world of folk and old-time music any good, their answers couldn't have been more different from AJ's. I would say unequivocally yes. Um... And that is like, it's hard for me to say because I don't like Mumford and Sons. And I think that there's something kind of exploitative and colonistic about what they do. But at the same time, there are a lot of people my age who play old time music and who are really good players who came to it because they heard Mumford and Sons or the Lumineers or some other folk pop band that happened in that early 2010s boom. I mean, I found my way to it from the Civil Wars who were in a totally you know, it's a very different style of music and they're both from the South, but it's the same vibe of, you know, folk pop can lead you down the rabbit hole and bring you to something older than that. And I think just creating a mainstream market for the type of thing that we do is important. Oh, brother, where art thou? Mumford and Sons. All of that opened a ton of doors and created a whole lot of economic opportunity for artists of your and my generation who are working in the folk genres. Yeah. I mean, like, um, the early 2010s or like, I mean, I guess even like really earlier than that, like, I guess like probably like 2008 and stuff, um, had like a huge pop folk, uh, movement and like, you know, Mumford and Sons is a huge part of that. Hmm. So like, um, yeah, I mean, it definitely opened up, like, the world to see, like, you know, to be, like, uh, I mean, it opened up the eyes for, like, some people to just, like, kind of shit on it because they want shit on it, and for other people to be, like, oh, folk is, like, a really cool thing that I enjoy listening to. I'm gonna be honest, when you, like, when you wrote me that message, I was, like, oh, I'm so ready to roast Mumford and Sons. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was, like, you know, actually, maybe we haven't been that fair. <laughs> You know, it's one of my favorite, I mean, this is only like, I think my sixth episode, but that's one of my favorite things 
uh, like consistently favorite things about doing this is that I'll like record with somebody for like an hour and they'll be like, oh shit, I just realized I spent like an hour supporting them and that was not my game plan coming into this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you did that. So I said that was my last question for Max and Blunt, but obviously there was one more question that I still had to ask. As you might know, there's a, I sometimes do this thing on my podcast where I ask you, what would it take for you to see them live? I came into this being like, no, like I, the tickets would have to be free around the corner from my, I'd have no plans that night. Like I'd have to be in like the best mood ever and go like, fuck it. Why not? But the idea of like, I don't know, maybe if tickets were like 15, 20 bucks, it was a Friday, it was a Friday night. It was like late spring, early summer. Like it was a nice night out. Like, yeah, I'd probably go to that, but only for the experience of going with my friends, not like you could sub in any musical act there, you know, like I'm not actually going to pay to see Mumford and Sons. I'm going with my friends. And that's like the only scenario where I would put down money and leave my apartment and go see Mumford and Sons, you know? (laughs) I like how you acted like you were making a concession, but that was like incredibly (laughs) specific. You were like, if it was $15, it was a Friday night and the weather was nice. (laughs) If it's January and they're playing Madison Square Garden, I'm go. there's like one person who's like, do you want to see them? Tickets are 50 bucks. I'm like, no, get the fuck out of here. Maybe in like a sort of David Foster Wallace goes to the International Lobster Fest or whatever. <laughs> no, it's like an anthropological study. Um, I, I would never go to have fun. Would I have to pay? Uh, yeah, tickets are like, you know, let's say like, let's say like 50 bucks. Not a chance. Okay. Is there is there a number I would have said where you've been like yeah sure? If a friend of mine like like hit me up and was just like I have a free ticket for you to Mumford and Sons, I would totally go. But for me, it's just like me paying like really anything to see Mumford and Sons is just like not really gonna happen. <laughs> Bottom line, to go to one of their shows, I would have to have someone else pay for it and have to have it be understood that I'm gonna talk shit the whole time. Those are the prerequisites, like. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't ever go with the understanding that I'm, A, going to enjoy it, or B, going to let anyone in earshot enjoy it. <laughs> you know, I realize that it's ridiculous for me to say that after spending this whole time trying to be, like, really magnanimous about what they're doing um, and not be too judgmental. But I just have to say, it's like, you know, I'm I'm not going to encourage people to hate on them publicly, but I'm still personally going to hate on them privately. <laughs> and I think as musicians and music lovers, that's all of our personal right. We get to uh, like what we like and not like what we don't. <laughs> right. Thank you so, so much to Jake Vitale, AJ Stoughton, Stephanie Talia Murray, Max Shotgun, and Jake Blunt. Uh, I told all of them that in return for their thoughts and opinions, I would plug whatever they asked me to, so here we go. Go to notnothing.ooo and check out AJ's chapbook, En Un Auto Arteriado. And in case I butchered that, which 100%, he told me it's the one with the Spanish title, so go check that out. Jake Vitale didn't have anything to plug, so I'm just going to do it for him. Everyone go check out Cloud District on Bandcamp. They're an amazing emo rock band that is definitely worth listening to. 
Uh, check out Steph's Instagram that features incredibly fluffy and cute dogs that she walks at Nuka and Circo. That's at N-U-K-K-A and S-I-R-K-O. Uh, as I mentioned, Parsons Field has an amazing album called Happy Hour on the Floor that is out now and everyone should go check it out. They also have really good merch and an Instagram account where they have some really awesome live concerts. Jake Blunt has an album coming out on May 29th called Spider Tales that is available for pre-order now on Free Dirt Records and everyone should go buy it. Guys, most of my episodes feature a section where I ask people if they would see someone live. But obviously right now because of the pandemic, that's not an option. And a bunch of artists like the ones I interviewed for this show are losing out on a huge part of their income. So please, if you can, Look into who's making the music that inspires you right now, and rather than stream them on Spotify or Apple Music, go to Bandcamp or the artist's website and support them by actually buying it. If you like it, go ahead and buy some merch too, because it's a really, really great way to support an industry that's really struggling right now. Guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Skip Button. It was so much fun chatting about Mumford & Sons, both with close friends and with people that I hadn't spoken to in a really long time. Uh, As I mentioned, I announced this episode on my Instagram story, and I think that's what I'm going to do in the future until otherwise deterred. So keep an eye out for that. And please, whether you're a close friend of mine or someone that I haven't talked to in a while, do not hesitate to reach out with your takes and opinions. It doesn't even have to end up on this podcast. Right now, it's just nice to be able to talk with people about music. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, and let me know who I should talk about for the next episode of The Skip Button. Bye, guys.